in our semester study, we're doing the life of Moses. This week, we're getting to what is probably one of the most famous chapters in the Bible, chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. Actually, the Bible never calls them the Ten Commandments. The Bible, at one other place, not here, but at a different place, calls them the Ten Words, which is interesting, the Ten Words. And I do think that, in a lot of ways, Christians really misunderstand the Ten Commandments. I think the way that a lot of the discussions and debates in our culture about the, the Ten Commandments and whether we should post them you know, on courthouse, courthouse walls or in public schools, there's a place not too far from where I live that I drive by this one particular house every time I take my kids to school, and they've got you know, like a, a, a placard in their front yard, so they've posted the Ten Commandments in their front yard as a witness to all their neighbors, I guess. I do think that... It's, it's really interesting. I, there's no room actually there for you to actually pull over uh, it, on that street at all. It's a really busy street with no sort of room at all for you to pull over and actually read them. So I, I don't know, you know what the point of the placard is. But they're there in case you, know, you, you need to, to read them. Um, I don't mean to make light of this, but I do think Christians really misunderstand the point of this. And it is interesting, like on that placard near my house on Judge Moore's monument that he argued so vehemently for down in Alabama, they all leave out, really, in in, in a lot of ways, what is the thing that God emphasizes, the context, the preface, the beginning of what he says. They edit that out, and in so doing, really distort the story and the God of the story. Because, you see, the Ten Commandments come out of a particular context. They come out of a particular story, and they're spoken by a particular God, not just some vague, amorphous God of the Judeo-Christian ethic, but a particular God who acts in a particular way. And it's important that we understand that if we would understand Christianity, and we'd understand uh, this chapter of the Bible. So let's look at these words that God speaks in verse 1 of Exodus chapter 20, we will not start with verse 3, even though that's what most Christians do, but we will start with verse 1. Why? Because verse 1 says, and God spoke all these words. So, as A.W. Tozer, great Christian leader who's dead now, used to say, no one has the right to edit God. No one has the right to edit God, even if, even if you're a Christian. So God spoke all these words in Exodus chapter 20. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Now that that should change the way you read the rest of this. In other words, if you read the rest of this with that context in mind, you read the rest of these not as a bunch of rules that you need to adhere to so that God will love you, you actually don't read these as, here's the way I'm going to put you back into bondage. <laughs> no, it's not that at all. This is the God who brought you out of slavery teaching you this is how you will stay free. This is what I've made you for. This is your destiny. Think of that as we read the rest of this. You shall have no other gods before me. 
You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and lightning, and heard the trumpet, and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you, so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Pray with me. Lord, we ask that you would help us to understand this famous and familiar passage. Help us to see how it reveals who you are and what you've made us for. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We will do another week where we'll talk more about the commandments themselves. But in this week, I really want to talk about the context, because without the context, you don't understand the Ten Commandments. And I want to talk a little bit about the idea of God revealing himself through the commandments. And then next week, I'll, I'll basically try to make some suggestions about the commandments themselves. I actually did a whole semester on the Ten Commandments a few years ago. I think all, most of those messages are posted at belmont.ruf.org. If you go there, you can click over on the left side on RUF Sermons, I think it's called, or Sermons, and you can download the outlines or you can download the talks. They're probably not great recording quality, but um, if you want to explore this. So I don't know how in the world I'm going to do that in one week next week, but we're going to give it a try. Um, so here's, you know, here's the point. The context is vital. And, and what is important about the context to understand the Ten Commandments It's this, like I said uh, before we read this, they have a particular context in a particular God and a particular story. I like the way that Old Testament scholar Peter Enns puts this, and I put the quote there for you on the top of the outline. He says, the Ten Commandments should not be understood as isolated moral maxims, little rules or little, you know, ways for you to live. They're not instructions for personal piety, commands in order for people to win God's favor, They are given in a historical and redemptive context. I have redeemed you. I have delivered you out of Egypt's bondage. And they should be understood in that context. They are given to people already redeemed. Not so that they might be redeemed. 
They are also given to the people as a whole. The whole people hear it. They don't like it. It kind of freaks them out. But the whole of the people hear it. They are given to the people as a whole. And the actions of individuals have broader repercussions. The focus of many of these commandments actually is to foster social cohesion, to build community. It's a fancy way. That's the way an Old Testament scholar says that. Which serves not merely to make the Israelites nice people, but agents of world change. We're going to talk about what what he means by that as we go through this tonight. So what is the context? If the context is so important, what is it that's so important about the context? A couple points. The first is, the Ten Commandments are not the beginning of the story. This may seem obvious, but I want to make sure that we get this. This is not the book of Genesis. This is not the first thing God said to his people. It's not. There's a lot of story before this. The book of Exodus makes mention all over the place about how God is the God of their fathers and about how the the events that are taking place are a fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham. So this is not the beginning of the story. It's Exodus. And what has happened to bring God's people to this point? Well, a bunch of big things, like the creation, the fall, God's promise to not let the fall be the end of the story, but to send uh, a redeemer who would come one day, meaning, meaning Jesus himself, who has not come yet, But God has, in a way that foreshadows, but also in a way that will bring eventually the Messiah, Jesus, to come one day. He has delivered his people from bondage in Egypt. He has taken them through the desert, carried them, as we saw last week, like on eagle's wings. And now he's brought them to his mountain to worship him and to have them as his own people. A holy nation, right, for him. We talked about, this is all last week, so go listen to the podcast. I won't go through all that again. But this is the sto- This is the point where we are now in the story. So that's the first point of the context. It, it happens in this story, this redemptive story. God did not say first thing out of his mouth, hey, here's what you need to do. And, and you see that in this passage. I am the Lord, your God. And when it uses that phrase, Lord, it's, it's the word, the Hebrew word Yahweh. It refers to the God who is the covenant God who has pledged himself to his people and revealed himself to his people by this name. This is who I am. They know him. The second point is these commandments are given in a truly frightening, awe-inspiring context. There's smoke, there's lightning, The whole mountain is burning and smoking, right? It's frightening. It's not a cool, rational discussion. Though there are, are, I guess, times for that where we'll just debate ideas. This is not one of those times. This is God saying, I'm God, you're not. I've redeemed you when you couldn't redeem yourself. And now I'm going to say, look, here's what you were made for. You don't know. You don't know what you're made for. You don't know how you're supposed to live. I'm going to tell you. Now, here's what's fascinating, right? At this point, like the people are so freaked out. They say, we don't want God to talk to us, Moses. You go talk to him so we don't have to hear his voice anymore. We can't stand it. At this point, God could have told them anything. And they would have said, sure, whatever you want, we'll do it. He could have, he could have done I mean, they're freaking out, right? But God isn't like the other gods, the gods of their neighbors, who would say, well, God says you must sacrifice your firstborn, and then maybe I'll listen to you. 
No, God didn't say that. He could have said that, and they probably would have done it. But he doesn't say that. He says, I am the Lord who redeemed you. I am not the Lord God who needs to be impressed or who needs to, whose attention needs to be gotten so that I'll look at you and sort of look down from my holy mountain. No, I'm the God who brought you here so that I could have you for myself as my own special treasured possession out of all the nations on the earth. That's who I am. You don't have, you don't have to impress me. You don't have to win me over. I'm madly in love with you. Now let me tell you, here's how my people should live. Here's, here's what this relationship is going to look like, right? Their God is like no other. Our God is like no other. Third thing about this, and again, it's the point I've made, but it's worth reiterating, because it's really the point that God reiterates. What God emphasizes that's so important about the context is that the context of these commands is deliverance from bondage. That's what he says, right? First thing, I am the God who brought you out of bondage. Again, his goal is not to put them back into bondage. It would make any sense if he went to all that work to get them out of bondage in Egypt, only to bring them to this mountain to put them back into bondage. Just like it wouldn't have made any sense for God to bring them out of the desert just to kill them. But God's people, you know, sometimes believe insane things, don't they? God's people believe, no, God, you brought us out of Egypt, but you brought us into this desert to kill us. And God didn't t- take that lightly. He thought that that was rather offensive. So it is here. I think God is rather offended when we think that the purpose of his law is to put us into bondage. And therefore, we don't like it, or we don't listen to it, or we don't, we don't think it has anything of value for us. I mean, what you see, if you want to see what a mature person in a relationship with God, his relationship to the law, read the Psalms. David says, I love your law. Now, one of the things you need to understand is the law is bigger than just the Ten Commandments. There's chapter after chapter after chapter of, after this in Exodus of what God also revealed to Moses, including all of the sacrificial system, all kinds of stuff, Right? The law and the gospel are all there in this that God has given to them on Mount Sinai. But I love the law. Why can you love the law? Because it's given to us by one who has redeemed us and who says, this is what you were made for. It's not to put them back into bondage. That's why James, in, in chapter 1, of verse 25 of James's letter in the New Testament, he calls the law, are you ready for this? The law of perfect freedom. I think most Christians think that that's the craziest thing they ever heard. The law of perfect freedom? But it's because we're so messed up in our idea about what freedom is. We think freedom is being able to do whatever we want, whenever we want, with whoever we want. But really, freedom is actually being able to be who you were meant to be. I have an old friend, Jeffrey Lancaster, used to use this illustration. It's kind of corny, but I think it's helpful. He says, imagine if you're out fishing. And, you know, you got your line in the water, and, you know, it's a beautiful day, and you're out there, and all of a sudden, you know, this, this fish just jumps out of, uh, up on the bank and starts shouting. You, get, you know, imagine this. Shouting, I'm free, I'm free, right? Shouting, I'm free, I'm free, until eventually, you know, he dies because he can't breathe out of the water, right? Fish out of the water are not free. They're this close to dead. 
And so it is for so many people in our world and in, in this room. We think that we're free, but we're not, we're not free because we're not living the way God has created us to be, right? Freedom is being who you were meant to be, right? And um, this, is, this is the point. Now, there's a great passage that brings this out. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Listen to this. Deuteronomy 6, 20 through 24. I put it on, on the outline here if you want to read along. Um, God says this, In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? When your son asks you that or your daughter asks you that, tell them this. We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent miraculous signs and wonders, great and terrible upon Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land that he promised on oath to our forefathers. Isn't that great? Do you understand what God's saying? God's saying is in the future, when your children say, what's the point of these laws? Tell them the story about what I did. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think very many Christian parents do that. I think a lot of Christian parents and a lot of Christian schools and a lot of Christian churches, when you say, what's the point of these commandments that I'm supposed to obey? They say, shut up, kid. Don't ask questions. Do this. But God actually intends the commandments to stimulate questions, which can only be answered by the story. Because God has revealed himself through this story and through these commandments. And I think Christians miss this all the time. They rip the, these commandments out of this context and they say, this is, this is what we're supposed to do. This is what we're supposed to do, right? We have to be careful about this. Do not treat these Ten Commandments as little moral abstract principles for how to live your life disconnected from the story. And that's what I think so many of these well-meaning Christians do. When they, when they put a, you know, a placard up in their front yard, it's disconnected from the story. And I don't think anybody's driving by saying, what's the point of this? And if you ask that person... I can almost guarantee you, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I can guarantee you, if you knock on their door and say, what's the point of this? I don't think the answer is, our fathers were slaves in Egypt and God brought them out of, by a mighty hand. No, it's, we've got to get back to when this place was a Christian nation, dang them it. You know. No, it's, it's not, that's not the story. The story is not, we used to be great, and if we do the right things, we can be great again. That's not the story. The story is we were traitors. We didn't even want to be delivered. And God delivered us with a mighty hand. And do you understand, like, God gives these commandments to people who are not good people. These are the people who just a few chapters before said, you're trying to kill us, God. These are the people who, while Moses is up getting these commandments, do you know what they're doing? Later, Exodus 32, Exodus 34, they're making a golden calf. Moses is still getting the rest of the law from the Lord, and they are making a golden calf and putting their hope in something else other than the one who delivered them out of Egypt, right? So these are not commandments given to good people to help them remember why they're better than everybody else. 
These are not commandments given to people so that they can show off how they alone understand what it, what it means to be a good person. No, these are given to traitors and ingrates. One of my favorite um, passages in Deuteronomy 9.24, this basically just captures in one little sentence the relationship of God and his people Israel. You ready? He says, God says to them, he says, you have been rebellious against the Lord ever since I have known you. That's it. You've been rebellious against the Lord ever since I've known you. All right? Those are the people God redeemed out of Egypt. Those are the people that he gives these commandments to. They're given to people who are idolaters and adulterers to drive them to Jesus. The Ten Commandments were never given to people to say, if you do this, then I'll love you. God never says that. No, he says, I've... I've made you my treasured possession, and I care how you live. I care how you live, right? And, and, and if you're not living this way, then you need, you need something from me. And I care how you live so much, and I love you so much, that I'm not going to let you live any old way you please, right? I remember once uh, watching the Phil Donahue show, and this goes way back. I don't know if any of y'all even remember the Phil Donahue show. It was, it was before Oprah. It was like the talk show that everybody watched. And I remember this silly fashion model on there one time. Not that all fashion models are silly, but she was. Because she, had, she was talking on and on about how she didn't want to raise her children with any restraints or any limitations whatsoever. So she had literally built a padded cell as a bedroom for one of her children. Just, just a padded room so that this child could do whatever it wanted, like bash against the wall or throw things or whatever, and not be injured in any sort of way. And I thought, my gosh, I hope that kid never shows up you know, in our college group because kids with no limits are the most insecure people that you'll ever know. The most insecure people you know are the people who grew up with no limits because they always wonder, am I loved? Am I loved? One of the things the Ten Commandments says is that you're loved. God cares how his people live. Right? See, here's what I want to get into in the rest of this tonight. God reveals himself through these commandments. I think so, so much of the time we just look, we strip them away from the story. And when we do that, we strip them away from God. And we just consider them by themselves in abstract but God is revealing himself through these commandments. See, here's one of the big problems. I think a lot of people think that Moses is the lawgiver. The Bible never calls him that. And he is not, in fact, the lawgiver. God is the lawgiver. Moses merely communicates the law to God's people. But he's not the lawgiver. Why is this important? Um, Peter Enns has has a great way of saying this, so I'll quote him. He says, the lawgiver is God himself. Now notice this, giving the people a piece of himself, a glimpse into the divine mind and will. Then he quotes this guy, um, Sarns, morality is the expression of the divine will. Do you understand that when God gives these commandments, he's giving his people a piece of himself, He's revealing himself and what he's like and what things matter to him. 
Do you know how, how gracious that is? So many, see, the, so many of the gods in the ancient world, you had no idea what they wanted for you. People were left to grope in the dark, wondering what it would take to get this God to like us enough to give us rain. Or, or it, people were in such bondage because the gods didn't tell people what they wanted. And if they did, they wanted things that you couldn't possibly do. And so God instead says, here's, here's what I want. I want, you to, I want you to rest in being my treasured possession. And out of that, I want you to, I want you to live this way. Because this is what you were made for. And it breaks my heart to see you running after other lovers. It breaks my heart to see you running after gods. It's not what I made you for. It breaks my heart to see you lusting after things that I have not decided to give you. Right? This is what he's saying. I, I ran across this quote by Alanis Morissette a few years ago, and I've always thought it was so sad. Sad, really. She understands it as real freedom. That's why it's so sad to me. She said this in Rolling Stone. She says, I've realized that God has no preference about how we live our lives. I don't think God prefers one choice over another. He or she or it notes rather than judges. Now, I think there's a lot of people that would resonate that and say, yes, that's what we need. We finally need to be free of the idea of a judgmental God. We'd all be a lot better off. People in our culture would be a lot better off if we get rid of this idea of a judgmental God. But do you understand that if God merely notes, you will never know love. If God merely notes and he doesn't care how you live, that doesn't give me warm fuzzies. Is that, have you ever been noted? You know, okay, duly noted. You know, this, is what you, this is what gives you passion? This is what you're passionate about. This is, what, this is what's so important to you. Great, duly noted. No, no. Who, who wants that? A God who merely notes, brother, judging, God, the fact that God judges means that he cares. He cares. He cares, right? The Bible teaches this, 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 this is important. The Bible teaches that a God who doesn't care how you live doesn't love you. And a God who doesn't reveal how he wants you to live doesn't want you to know him either. God, a God who doesn't want you to know him will not tell you how he wants you to live. When he tells you how he wants you to live, you're learning something about who he is. It should be that way, I think, with parents and children. I don't know if it always is. But my children should understand something about what's important and what's important to me, and what's important. And they should learn something about the nature of reality as I see it from the things that I tell them they should do and not do, right? And it's the same way with God. He wants you to understand something about who he is, the things that are close to his heart. And the Ten Commandments are part of that, right? So God reveals himself in these commandments. Second point, he reveals himself in a memorable way. Now, this is obscured a little bit by some of the translations. And I don't know if, if you were sort of confused by this um, little place at the end there. Um, it's in verse 20. 
I mean, right, it's memorable in the sense that there's smoke and there's fire and all this kind of stuff, all right? But, but verse 20 brings this out as well, but I think it's obscured in the translations. Uh, the NIV puts it this way, Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, God has come to test you, so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Now, this is weird, like, if, did you read that and go, that's kind of weird, what does that mean? Don't be afraid, but God wants you to be afraid so that you won't sin. Isn't that what it sounds like? That's what it sounds like to me. And yet, what's helpful is to understand this word test. This word test is probably better rendered, a lot of the commentators say this, um, with the sense of experience. So here's the way Peter Peter ends explains this, and and I'll just use his words because I think they're helpful, and he's a Hebrew scholar. So the Hebrew word, uh, you know, I don't know, you know, N-S-H, Hebrew Hebrew words, um, nouns just have, you know, they just have, these consonants, they don't have the vowels. Um, depends on how they're used with the vowels. But the Hebrew word, NSH, should not be understood. That's the word here rendered test, okay? Should not be understood in the sense of finding out how the Israelites will perform or react to something. I mean, there's not much to test. They've already proven that they're scared out of their wits, okay? So God is not, oh, let's figure out what lightning and thunder will do to them. No, he knows what it's going to do to them, right? God is not revealing himself in thunder and lightning to see how the people will react. It is much more convincing to translate the word here as experience. In other words, verse 20 can be paraphrased this way. Do not be afraid. God is giving you a taste of himself so that this memory will stick with you to keep you from sinning. Let me say that again. Do not be afraid. God is giving you a taste of himself so that this memory will stick with you to keep you from sinning. The people's fear, and says, is to be tempered by the fact that God is giving them this experience for a reason. So Moses says to them, don't be afraid. God has a reason for the smoke and the fire. He wants this to stick with you, to help you not sin. Right? See, we get hung up on this word test, but it can also be rendered something like, you know, uh, train. And so, you know, we read it as test and we automatically think the worst possible thing we can think. Aha, God is out there to get us and to trip us up and to prove that, you know, that we can't do anything right. That's not what he's saying. What it's saying here is God is giving you this memorable experience to help keep you from sinning. It would be really easy at this point to, to connect this to Jesus, and, and it's, a, it's a good connection. That what Jesus did on the cross is to be a memorable experience. That's why in most Christian churches we celebrate the Lord's Supper regularly to help us to remember who it is that lived and died in our place and what a big deal that is, Right? God often does this. He tells, teaches us things in memorable ways, and he's doing that here. Third, God reveals himself not just to his people, but through his people. And this is really important to understand about the Ten Commandments. He wants to reveal himself. God wants to reveal himself to the world, not just Israel. And he wants to do it through his people by using these commandments to mold his people into a countercultural community. 
Now, this is something that in my own study of the Ten Commandments has only been recently that I've really understood this. That this is God saying, this is how a countercultural community of my holy nation, my people, is to live so that all the other nations will understand that there really is a different way to live. You don't have to live just for yourself. You don't have to live in, t- in, in sort of fear all the time of what God might do to you. You really can live out of an assurance of God's love. And here's the difference it makes. That's what these Ten Commandments are about. They're about forming a countercultural community. They teach us that true community, see this is so necessary because everybody talks about community in our world and nobody really knows how to do it. They don't. And it's no less true in the church. But one thing that Christians should understand is this, these things, honor these things, goes a long way towards making a countercultural community. Listen, true community, a true community is built when our sexuality is honored. A true community is built when the property of others is honored. A true community happens when proper authority is honored, when our words are trustworthy, and so on, right? These Ten Commandments are not just for individuals. They're to shape and mold a community so that the watching world can see this God is different because these people are different. Now, what about this this whole thing about God punishing the sins of the fathers on the children? That's a little troubling, isn't it? Did that trouble you? I hope. If not, you weren't. You fell asleep like before I even started talking hardly. Um, I think that this community aspect of the Ten Commandments helps with this as well. It does. Now, I I won't go into long detail because it will bore all of you. But but here's the thing. Um, Number one, the Hebrew text doesn't say punish. It says visit. God will visit. And I think that what's going on is interesting. There's a couple places, one in Deuteronomy, one in Ezekiel, where God says very specifically, I will not punish the children for the sins of their fathers. So how do you reconcile that with this? Especially the Deuteronomy passage, because they're both written by Moses. I think that the way to understand it is the Deuteronomy and Ezekiel passages are talking about an individual sin by an individual father will not be punished upon an individual son. But what the Ten Commandments is saying here is to be better understood in a corporate sense. That if you as a people do not honor this way of living, it will have repercussions for your whole community. And that is indeed what happens as the story goes on. In other words, this is a way to live. If you don't live this way, it won't just affect you. It will affect those to come. There will be ramifications God will visit those ramifications upon those to come. I, I, I wrote some stuff on there if you want to look at that more. It may not be a fully satisfying uh, answer. You can look at some other commentaries if you want to explore that further. Come talk to me, I'll tell you. Um, but here's the point of this. The commands are given to form a countercultural community that truthfully represents God to the world. And this is not just an Old Testament thing. This is what God wants in the New Testament. There's this great place in 2 Corinthians 5 where Paul talks about how we are to be ambassadors to the world. That we're to represent to the world what God is like. And, and a lot of us think, a lot of people have been grown up in churches where the way that they've been told to do that is to tell everybody how they're wrong. Of course, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside of the church? I think most Christians should, should read that verse because most of the world outside of the church thinks that Christians hate them. That's not very much in keeping with 2 Corinthians 5 where we're told to be ambassadors to the world. 
or in keeping with 1 Corinthians 5, which says that it's not our job to judge those outside of the church. Nonetheless, most people in our world think that Christians hate them. That's deeply troubling. And it means that we don't yet understand God's point in the Ten Commandments forming us into a countercultural community that demonstrates for the watching world there is a better, more freeing, authentic way to live. And it starts with faith in Christ. Third point tonight is how God reveals himself fully in Jesus. There's a great place here at the very beginning in verse 2 where it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Listen, this is so beautiful to see this together. He is the Lord, the only one, and he's your God. It's so important to see this. What God is saying here when he's saying, I am your God, this is like a marriage vow. God is not just declaring, hey, just so you get this straight, I'm God. I'm the new sheriff in town, right? Used to be Egypt, used to be Pharaoh, no more. I'm God. Look at the smoke, look at the lightning. Aren't you terrified? No. What he's saying is, I love you, and this is not just a temporary feeling. I'm pledging myself to you. I'm making vows to you, right? I'm your God. Do you understand the privilege implied in that? I'm your God. That God says to you, I'm your God. I'm not just the God. I'm your God, right? There, There are three phrases that are so important to think of and hold together when you think about God. He's the creator, he's the lawgiver, and he's the lover. They're all wrapped up in this, right? I am the God. I'm the God who created everything. I'm the God. There are no others, right? I am the one who's giving you these commandments, and I have every right to do so. But I'm your God who's pledged myself to you in love. If you, if you emphasize one of those without all three, you really misunderstand who God is. It's hard to hold them together, but we have to. But there's one other thing that's important to hold together, and it's this. It's in a passage in Isaiah where God says that he who is our maker is also our husband. It's the same idea, but even, even fleshed out a little more. It's in Isaiah 54. It says this, For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. This is so amazing. And you see it here in the Ten Commandments. And we'll talk about this next week. The Ten Commandments are not just external by any means. And that's not just something that Jesus brought out of them. It was already there. When it says, do not covet, God is already teaching them, I want your heart. I am a jealous God, it said. A lot of people don't know what to do with the idea that God is a jealous God. What it means that God is a jealous God is that he won't share your love with another. It's, again, further evidence about how much he loves us. Our maker is our husband. God says, I care about you. See, here's the amazing thing. And why, you know, earthly law can never, can, can never get to what the Ten Commandments are getting at here. Because no, no, no country can make laws against what you hope for. But God claims that prerogative when he says, do not covet. He says, I have a right, I have a right to tell you what you should long for what you should hope for. Why? Because I'm a jealous God and I made you for myself and I want your heart. I want your heart, right? It's not against the law in our country to covet. It's not. 
As a matter of fact, you know, there are lots of things, you know, politics and advertising that wouldn't, wouldn't get very far if you couldn't covet, if it was against the law. I don't know what they, those, those industries would do. But, um, but God says, don't covet. Why? Because I made you for myself and I want your heart. And grudging obedience to these externals, thinking of these as moral maxims that you try your best to do, when most Christians honestly can't even name the Ten Commandments, right? Let alone seriously try to obey them. Um, if you understand them for moral maxims of life, no wonder you feel depressed and you wonder if God loves you, <laughs> right? But Jesus is the way God says uh, that he loves you. I don't have time to go in, into this anymore. We're going to pick up on the Ten Commandments again next week and get more into the, the nitty-gritty of what they're about. Um, but remember this. God reveals himself in these commandments and reveals that he's our God and he cares for us. And the story is not done. The Ten Commandments is just another step on the way. Let's pray together.